Welcome to the Highway Church Podcast. We're excited that you would join us today and hope you're encouraged by the message you hear. If you'd like to know more, visit our website, highway.com.au. Man, I miss this church. Uh, Three years is far too long to be away from our home, away from home. Uh, I was talking to my wife today. She's uh, been taking care of her mother, and she said, oh, I'll tell Byron and Ann hello for me. I'm so sad I can't be there. Uh, we really do. People ask me, hey, why, why wouldn't you come to Australia? Do you go to Highway? People ask me that. Why do you go to Highway? And I say, because it's my home. Uh, it started years ago when Clive actually introduced me. He kept talking about this guy, Byron, and then next thing you know, we're playing golf together in L.A., and then I met Ann and realized she's the brains behind this outfit. <laughs> and, uh, and Byron will tell you that. Byron will tell you that. And then, it, so, the, you know, I really, I really, this is kind of our home. And I think, I think when you're, you know, when, you're, when you have a good family and you have home, sometimes you don't know how good you have it. Yeah. And like, can I just say something to you? You know, I've traveled all around the world, all around the world, and you have it good here. Yeah. You don't realize how blessed you are to have, to be part of this church. Um, you've got people who are unassuming, they're not prideful, they're about as humble as they come, which is right there in and of itself is hard to find. And you've got great music. I told Clive, I said, every time I come here, I just get ticked. And here's why. Because we have this big church in L.A., and why do we not have musicians like this? I don't understand. I mean, they're, they're good, but man, you, your music is always good. This, uh, there's a song you did this morning, the fourth song that you did, and Clive and I looked at it, where did that song come from, and why don't we have it? So every time I come down, I think, man, and, Clive, he, and Byron's always asking me, hey, tell me how you do this, tell me how you do that, and I'm always saying, no, 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 you tell me how you do this and how you do that. Great church. And I had the best coffee. I had the best coffee just... You do know in America we can't get good coffee. You do know that. If you've ever traveled, there's no good coffee. Why? We can put a man on the moon, or so we say, but, but we can't make coffee. Oh, it's, it's depressing, man, I'm telling you. And then I come over here. You can't get a bad coffee here. You go to Zarafas. Your coffee in Zarafas is better than ours. And, every, and I've realized how much when I come back to Australia, I feel like, man, I, I just, it's like home, but it's not only home away from home, it's just very special to come to Highway. I, I just can't imagine, just can't imagine. Last time I was here, I spoke a few different places, but nah, this is it. Home away. So you're stuck. <laughs> you, you're stuck with me and Byron and Ann. Okay, so, you know, when you come to church, if you, you, know, you, you can do a lot of different things, but if you don't walk away learning something about the Scripture, the Word, what have you really done? Well, it's a pep talk. Right? I'm in Mark chapter 10. I'm going to read three important verses just in a moment. It'll take me a second to get there, but Mark 10, 13 through 16. And let me start this way, and I'll, I'll keep the time. Don't worry. I, a friend of mine sent me a YouTube video a couple weeks ago and said, Pastor Jeff, I want you to look at this, and, and, and you wives will understand this. And if you're young and you're not married yet, uh, let me just give you a warning right now. Okay? So on the, on the YouTube video, there's a, there's a man, and he's... Seated, it's a Friday night, his wife is out with her friends, and he's seated and watching the game, you know, just imagine you're in uh, uh, Brisbane or, or Gold Coast and you're watching the Broncos, and man, they're frustrating me lately. I'm a big Bronco fan, and they're just frustrating me lately, but anyway, that's another sermon. So, 
the, the guy's watching the Broncos. He's got potato chips. He's got food all over the place. And his wife comes in. I know this would never happen with Byron Ann. So the wife comes in after being busy all day, and it's just a mess. And he doesn't pick up after himself. There's stuff all over. And she looks at him and says, honey, how come every time I come home, this is just a mess? And he says to his wife, no, honey, honey, don't worry. Because every time I leave this like this, I wake up the next morning, and it's all clean and gone. It's amazing. He says, honey, it's a magic table. And she looks at him and says, you're kidding, right? He says, no, I'm serious. I just leave it here, and I get up the next day, and it's all clean. And come here, I want to show you something else. And he takes her to the laundry room. And he says, I just throw my clothes everywhere. And the next morning, they're all washed, dried, and folded and put back in the closet. It's like a magic, magic washing machine. So, honey, we can't leave this house. She goes, are you kidding? Are you serious? Well, the next morning he wakes up. She's not there. She's gone. And he says, man, what happened? She must have sat down on the magic table. <laughs> Disappeared. So he calls the police, and this is the police come. And he says, I don't know what happened, but my wife was here, and now she's gone. I can't find her. And I wonder if she sat down on the magic table, and the policeman says, what are you talking about? He says, yeah, this table, all kinds of stuff. I leave everything on it on Friday night when I'm watching the rugby, and then boom, it's gone the next morning. And the guy standing by, and he says, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. And the police sergeant goes, no, I have the same magic table at my house. <laughs> now, why would you use that? Why would I say that? Let me, let me tell you, especially for the young people, if you think that your faith requires no effort, you're, you're, you're in big trouble. There's no magic pixie dust that you can sprinkle on yourself and suddenly you become a fully devoted follower of Jesus. It is a lifelong journey. And here I am at 58 and I'm still struggling with some of the same sins. They, know, they don't let you go. You have seasons of where you got it. And then right at the wrong place at the wrong time it comes back. Now, what I'm about to share with you this sermon has taken me 32 years to write because I, I didn't understand it until recently. There is a connection between, there's a passage I'm going to read in a moment, and Jesus says, unless you become like a little child, you can't enter the kingdom. And I've heard so many sermons on that, and I've never li really liked them. <laughs> what do you mean? I mean, come on, it's got to be, what does Jesus mean unless you become like a little child? And then there's this whole thing of wonder of the universe, you know, how massive it is and how great God is. And then I started thinking about something. So I'm going to, here's what we're going to do. You know, I, I don't know if Byron told you, some of you don't know me, but I spend a lot of time traveling around to universities in America. And I'll speak on university campuses to hostile crowds, to people who aren't Christ followers. And I'll get, they'll fire questions at me, man, and it's usually done in anger. <laughs> and you have to keep your cool and you got to respect the questioner. And so what I, what I like to do is I, I like to take three parts of a puzzle, and, and rather than just kind of dis, like a Pez dispenser, dispense some information, I want, to, I want to take you on a journey of thought with me, because if I can take you on this journey of thought, then again, in the end, when we come to the conclusion, it'll mean so much more to you, because you, you came to the conclusion on your own. So this has three parts to it, and here's part one. And here, We're moving into Christmas. All right, so we're going to set this on the stage here. So we're moving into Christmas, and you think about Christmas. Christmas... You got the manger. I love Christmas. I start listening to Christmas music November 1st. Drives my wife batty, yeah. And my favorite Christmas, by the way, is Charlie Brown Christmas. Uh, you know, it's jazz. I love it. And I'm driving crazy because I'm listening to it in the room right now. 
Christmas is so soft, the baby in the manger, silent night, holy night, you got all these, but think about Christmas really. It's brutal. You know, Joseph and Mary have to go into the, because there's a census, they're in poverty, it's going to be a tough journey. They end up having a baby in a cave. Herod kills, he commits genocide against Hebrew boys trying to find the Christ child. But more importantly, this Jesus comes into the earth for one reason, and it's to die on the cross. Well, two, he's, he's going to reveal to us what God is like, but ultimately his mission of being born is to go to the cross and die, and it's going to be gross, a gruesome death. Now, here's one of the questions university students ask me all the time. Jeff, Pastor Jeff, I just don't get your God. Why does Jesus need to die? If God is loving, why can't he just look down and say, I forgive you? Why does he need a human sacrifice? Why does he have to be so barbaric? Okay. Let's say you've worked a long time and you finally got the car of your dreams. Okay, nice car. You've worked hard for it. And every day you go to work and you park it in a parking garage. And a week after you've bought this new car, you come out from work and you go back. And in the garage, a young man has taken a baseball bat and smashed it. I mean, the windows, the hood, your little Brisbane Broncos bobblehead. Do you have those here? I mean, he smashed everything. Obviously, a, obviously a, a Roosters fan. And so... <laughs> smashed everything you find it and you're you're gonna um, guys you're gonna be angry but a policeman caught the culprit and he comes dragging him over to you and you say why have you done this and you're angry and suddenly the guy says you know I don't know but I'm thinking about it now and I think I'm sorry I'm really sorry that I did that so can't you just forgive me And the policeman looks at you and says, yeah, just forgive him. What are you going to do? Give me that baseball bat, (laughs) right? And the cop looks at you and says, well, you're being quite vindictive. Why can't you just forgive? Why can't you just let it go? And the policeman looks at you and says, just let it go. Just forget it. Let it go. I can promise you that most men would be filled with the desire to hurt the person right away. And do you know why that is? Because forgiveness is a major problem. It is impossible to just forgive. It's not a simple thing. It's a conundrum. You can't just let something go as if the offense disappears. You know that. Every wrong has a cost to it. Think about it. Either he pays for the car, or someone else comes along and pays for the car, or you pay for the car, or you pay the price of living without the car. But... It's never as easy as just letting it go. There's always a cost. The offense doesn't just disappear as if it never happened. The Bible says your sins are separated as far as the east from the west, but it doesn't say it appears it never happened. They're just separated. Because forgiveness means bearing the loss or absorbing the cost. Now, I know that's a little heady and heavy. Stay with me. Keep going down this path. The other thing is, just to forgive the guy who smashed your car, is that loving? Is that loving? If you love the young man who destroyed your car, would it be good or loving if you just shrugged your shoulders and said, ah, just let it go, forget about it? And would it be good for society? Would it be good for society to just say, let it go as if it never happened? So I'm a father, somebody rapes my daughter, and I go to court, and there's the rapist. And the rapist comes in, and the judge says, 
what do you have to say for yourself? He goes, you know, I've had a lot of time to think about this while I've been sitting in prison. I think I'm sorry. Because can't she just let it go? If the judge said, yeah, well, if you're sorry, just forget it. Is that good for the person? Is it good for my daughter? Is it good for society? Because a rapist now is out on the streets. Stay with me. Keep thinking along this line. If you love the young man, the girl, the town, society, to say no worries, just let it go is not a good move. So the more loving, more benevolent, kinder that you are, the more forgiveness becomes an insoluble problem. It's incapable of being solved. On the one hand, it's not loving to punish him. On the other hand, it's not not loving to not punish him. Nuremberg trials. Imagine the generals of the Third Reich saying, okay, we've thought about it. We're actually sorry for what we did, murdering six million Jews. And if the judge says, oh, well, if you're sorry, you're, you're free to go. Wouldn't that minimalize or devalue the human life? Now, here's my point in this first section. If, if even on a human level, we don't really believe that you can just let something go as if it never happened, if we know in our humanness that forgiveness is an insoluble problem, how much more than for God, who is incredibly loving, incredibly caring, cares more about your life, the individual, society, everyone, than we could ever imagine... If we realize in our human condition that you just can't forgive without someone paying the cost, at our low level, if we understand that, what must it be like for God? If you and I have the sense of justice that makes it tough to just, just let it go as if it never happened, if we even understand that in our humanity, then how much more with God? So, having said that, you with me so far? I'm watching you. How does God respond to this insoluble problem? This is what Christmas is about. And the reason we've lost the wonder of Christmas, and we do, is because we've lost the wonder of God. What happens in the incarnation is God comes down to pay the cost. You say, well, why does there have to be cost? There's always cost. There's always somebody loses something. And the fact of the matter is you and I have no idea of the cosmic treason that sin in acts against God and against each other. There is a debt. Now, we may not understand the debt. It, I, think, I think we don't. We only understand that we've sinned against God, but we have no idea what sin does psychologically, physiologically, physically, emotionally to the world, to culture, and to yourself. So God chooses to remedy that by coming to earth. The, it's called the incarnation, Emmanuel, God with us. And this is why it's important for you not to just look now, I, I love this church, I do, but be careful, be careful that you don't major in subjectivity where feeling determines truth. You need both the objective, what is objectively true, and then if you get what is objectively true, it will motivate the emotions. You'll feel truth. That's why the Word of God is so important to understand. That's why theology, to a great degree, is important. And here's what bad theology says. Bad theology says Jesus was up in heaven, and God said, you know, look at those people down there. Man, those sinners, I'm going to need you to go down and offer a human sacrifice for me. No. Theology tells us that God goes himself, Emmanuel, God with us. That's hard for us to understand because the Trinity is a difficult concept. Okay, what kind of being am I? Human being, right? Yeah, what kind of being am I? Human being. Yeah, thanks for the vote of confidence there. 
human being. But God is a divine being. Now, because I am a human being, I'm limited. But God is a divine being expressed in three persons. So you've got God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He's a divine being in three persons. Each person of the Godhead is fully God, fully divinity. So this God decides he's going to come down and he's going to pay the penalty. Don't ever avoid the complexity of the cross. When somebody says, why can't God just let it go or forgive? You have a more one-dimensional God than even you are because even you are more complex than that. You say to somebody, well, I can't punish you because I love you, but I cannot not punish you because I love you. Every human judge faces this conundrum. Well, stay with me. We're still on this first little segment here. It's the hardest part. So a God who just forgives would not be a holy God, would he? He wouldn't uphold justice. But a God who refuses to forgive would not be loving. And a God who can't forgive would not be wise. So at the cross, all three converge. You've got a just God because sin has been punished. You've got a loving God. Rather than punishing you, he punishes himself. It's crazy. I mean, it's, it's, it's incredible. It's unique to the Christian gospel. And you've got a wise God who figures out a way to forgive us so that we can come into community with him. But sin's got to be punished. There has to be a cost. And the co- you, by, by the way, you and I have no idea how great the cost would have been for an infinite God. So the, so the creator allows the creature to kill him. It's, it's crazy. I mean, it's, it's, it's mind-boggling, isn't it? So that the immutable suffers mutation. The eternal suffers a temporariness. The creator of all things suffers at the hands of the created. Now, each one of those would be a sermon of itself. But all I want you to do for the meantime is take that and realize you can't just, for, to tell God, why don't you just let it go? No, you know better than that. Yeah. There's a cost. Somebody's got to pay. And there are ramifications associated with sin. So put that over here. Let's go to the second thing. Now, do you remember what Christmas was like when you were a little child? Oh, man. You know, we had these big Christmas trees, the light. You remember the old lights that were so big they'd burn your house down? And they did. I mean, now we have these little things. I don't know what's up with these little, now, but big, you couldn't touch them because you'd burn the skin off your hand. That's how powerful they were. And you put that with a tree that your dad cut off the back lawn, that's a recipe for disaster. A lot of houses burned down. Okay, Christmas, wonder. Now let me read the text. Mark 10, verse 13, people were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. But the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter into it. Wow. And he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them, and blessed them. Again, for the longest time, so we've got this piece over here. A longest time for children. What is it now? Now, it doesn't mean to be childish. It means to be childlike. There's a difference. So what does it mean? And I didn't know for ages that it was directly connected with verse 45. Where Jesus says in Mark 10, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. How are they connected? The Greek word lutron is translated ransom. 
And the word originates from the practice of warfare because the price paid to bring a prisoner of war out of captivity, back then when you enter into war, you didn't have POW camps. So if you were, if you were uh, captured, you were either executed or you became a slave for the rest of your life. And the only way to escape that slavery was if somebody, one of your countrymen came and ransomed you, paid the debt. In other words, he would pay the price and it was a heavy price because it would be the equivalent of a lifetime full of work and service. But Lutron, and I know this is heavy, but I know you young people. You got it right here, and you're going to follow me here. Okay, Lutron has both an objective and subjective side to it. The objective side of Lutron, of ransom, is that God does something on the outside of you for you. And you know what that is. He pays your sin debt and then applies it to your account. He accredits Jesus' debt, paying your debt to your account, so objectively you're saved because of what Christ did. But there's also a subjective side to it. And the subjective side is that God does something in you for you. Now, this is the question I've always wanted to answer. What is it? The Bible says the Holy Spirit comes in. We got that part. And he liberates you. But the question is, liberates me from what? How does it change my life? I got the objective part, send that page. But what happens inside me that's supposed to change everything? And this is what I did not have for most of my Christ-filled life. didn't understand it. Because I didn't understand, I didn't have it. Let me take a breath. Gandhi, the famous religious Gandhi, in his biography, struggled with the opposite problem. He says, I understand the subjective influence of Jesus. I don't understand the objective. He says, I could accept Jesus as a martyr and as an embodiment of sacrifice and as a divine teacher. His death on the cross was a great example to the world, but that there was anything like a mysterious and miraculous virtue in it, my heart cannot accept. Well, Gandhi's saying this, I can handle the subjective influence of the cross. Look at Jesus. What a great picture of Giving your life as a given your life, sacrifice, self-sacrifice, getting your attention off yourself and doing something that helps others. Gandhi said, I understand that selflessness or selflessness, and I think that's a great example to the world. Well, that's a problem. Because if the cross is only subjective and there's no objective truth to it where it, it saves me from my sin, then that doesn't liberate me. It crushes me. And here's why. I see Jesus on the cross, and he's loving people who hate him. He's saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Now, let's be honest with each other. That crushes me. I don't do that. I want to do that, but I don't do that. If I found you with a baseball bat bashing my new car, give me the bat. Your first inclination, your first inclination is revenge, and you know it. And so do I. And it's, it, stop acting like you're so self-righteous and, oh, I'm like Jesus. I just, you know, I don't talk about anybody else. And you know what? I'm just a good person. No, you're not. None of us are like that unless somebody's watching, which means we're, and which means we're not really like that. Gandhi says, oh, I love the example Jesus gave. Let's be like that. And I say, Gandhi, how? I'm crushed. However, if I see Jesus up on the cross, oh, this is beautiful, if I see him up there praying for me and forgiving me and objectively paying my debt, that liberates me. How does it liberate me? How does that liberate? How does that, what does it do inside me that changes my entire life? Okay. You still with me? You stay, 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 stay now. It's like geometry. If you miss one day, you miss the rest of the, right? You got you to keep it. 
So let's say to explain. I'm walking down the pier in Newport Beach, California. I love walking down the pier because there's a Ruby's, which is a hamburger place, out at the end of the pier, and I love going out there. So let's say you and I take a walk, and I look at you and I say, you know what, I just want to tell you something. I really appreciate all the work you've done at One and All Church and how you've volunteered. I really want to tell you I appreciate that. And then I jump over the pier and drown. Do you say, wow, behold how Jeff loved me. No, you say what? Man, Pastor Jeff took one too many Xanax or Zoloft, but he's lost it. However, if we're walking along the pier and you accidentally fall into shark-infested water and I jump in and save you and I die in the process, objectively, you would say, wow, behold how he loved his friend. No greater love than this than a man lay down his life for his friend. The point I'm making is, Jesus' subjective, the, the, the example that he gives me as a, as a selfless person is useless. His death is useless unless I'm in objective peril, unless I'm in trouble, unless I'm in danger, unless I'll be separated from God for all eternity. If he comes down and dies for me just to give me an example, that doesn't, make me, that doesn't liberate me. It makes me feel bad because I'm not going to do that for anybody else. But if he does it because I'm an objective peril, I am going to be separated from God for eternity, and he gives his life a ransom for me, then that motivates me subjectively, and here's how. Here's how. Suddenly I realize my worth. Suddenly I realize how much I'm really loved. There is a river called the Potomac River in Washington, D.C., and most... Uh, Americans learn about it when they're in school because George Washington, the first president, there's a lot of stories associated with the Potomac. And in Washington, D.C., there are a bunch of bridges that go across the river at 14th Street. And one of the bridges is named Arlen D. Williams Bridge. Because on January 1982, an Air Florida flight, Flight 90, was taking off at Washington National, and it w- they didn't de-ice the wings, and the plane plummeted started losing altitude, hit the 14th Street bridges, went into the Potomac River. The helicopter came to rescue any survivors as the plane was quickly sinking into the ice-frozen river. And the tail of the fuselage was sticking out. And everyone was drowning or had already drowned except a few people in the tail. And one guy named Arlen D. Williams was the most visible, the most alert, most accessible So the helicopter, the people in the helicopter started lowering the harness toward Williams in order to save at least one. But when they pulled up the rope, somebody else was on it. And they lowered it again, and somebody else was on it. And they lowered it again, and someone else was on it. Everybody that was saved on that flight were saved right then and there, and they lowered the rope one more time. Nobody was on it. Arlen D. Williams gave to others his place of deliverance. He took the destruction that was coming on them and gave them rescue. Now, the reason that moves you is because that is the most morally beautiful thing that we know of. In fiction or in nonfiction, the moral beauty of substitutionary sacrifice melts you, takes you, captivates you. And Jesus Christ says other religions give you information. I give you a story. And the story tells you, if you want to know God loves you, here's your proof. His ransom is the only thing that can truly break through and liberate you. Please stay. Please stay. How? How does it liberate you? It tells you that God has all the goods on you. 
and loves you. It tells you that everything you've done in your life, everything, he knows it all. And he still loves you. It took, you know, I didn't understand what this really meant until I had grandchildren. You love your children, but you love your grandchildren absolutely unconditionally. There is nothing your grandchildren can do to make you stop loving. Now, stay with me. This is the important part. If there is nothing that my children can do to make me stop loving them, and I'm human, how much more God? Do you remember what Jesus said in Luke 11? If you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more your heavenly Father in heaven? You see what he's saying? In your human way, you can love your grandchildren. And you do it unconditionally with grace and mercy. How much more then? If you can do that in your humanity, you've got no idea what I can do as God. And suddenly the light started coming on. And then I understood what Jesus meant. You have to become childlike to even see the kingdom of God and to understand it. And until you understand it, you will not enjoy your faith And the presence of God, you will not come to him with the kind of worship that you desire, that he desires, until the the coin drops. The problem is, what I've noticed in my life is most people, with most Christ followers, that sit in church every week, the coin never drops. Because when you become a child, three things happen. First, children are helpless, completely dependent on something outside themselves. You have to just not know Jesus paid your debt. You've got to completely rely on what he's done the rest of your life. Or your joy will fluctuate because you'll think it depends on how good you've been. My love for my granddaughter does not depend on how good she's been. And by the way, I'll tell you this. When my grandchildren came into the world, you know, they don't come into the world negotiating, saying, okay, mom, you do this for me and I'll do this for you. They got no power. They're completely dependent on God. They have an objective problem. Children look at the parent and sometimes can't even put into words what they need. They're totally dependent on the wisdom of the parent. You ever read Romans 8, 26? In the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness, we do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes. We don't even know what we should ask God for. So when my daughter-in-law, Jess, is pregnant with my first grandchild, Ada, I remembered what it was like to be a parent and how dependent the child really is. Little Ada, my little granddaughter, man, little Ada's in deep need. She depends on her mother for food and shelter and clothing and toilet training and bath and hygiene and care and compassion, all of it, completely dependent. But on the other hand, here's what I've noticed about Ada. She thinks that every time she walks into a room that everybody's interested in what she has to say. She automatically assumes that adults want to hear her. No matter who they are, young, old, intelligent, not so intelligent, she thinks her thoughts and actions will be appreciated. And she's positive that everyone will find her completely captivating and interesting, totally sure of acceptance and appreciation. Now, here's what you need to see. If your view of yourself is too high, you'll never know what it is to be a Christ follower you got to get to the end of yourself to where you realize even on your best day, you're, you, don't, you don't cut it. But he still loves you. And he's still for you. You say, Pastor Jeff, you don't know what I've done. I, I don't need to know today 
you can start. Whatever you've done, whatever you've done, forget what, what's happened. Start today. Because he's pulling for you. He'll forget all of that. He'll separate your sins as far as the east is from the west. Start today. So you've blown it. You've done some bad things. Okay, start today. So if your view of yourself is too high, you'll not be dependent like a child. child is totally dependent. You're totally dependent on God's forgiveness and mercy every, every hour of your life. However, if you have too low a view of Christ's love for you, you're not spiritually childlike. In other words, if you somehow think that God's not interested in you, if you think that God's not interested in your struggles, you think they're too shallow for Jesus, if you think that he doesn't love you because you blew it last night, you got too low a view of Jesus and too high a view of yourself, and you will never find joy. The penny hasn't dropped because you don't understand the objective and subjective side of the cross. You know, I went to Bible college, and I went to a college that was all head, no heart. They were self-righteous. They were arrogant. They had pride in the academy. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm thankful for my education. But there was almost no spiritual formation on campus. You know why? Because when you think you're smart and intelligent, you don't need God. When you think you're pretty good, pretty righteous, pretty smart, your dependence and your reliance on God for anything diminishes. That's why religion is the enemy of the cross and of your soul because it gives you a false sense of security. But the cross, the cross, if you come up to me later after the service, say, Pastor Jeff, thank you for coming. I really want to thank you. You really helped me. That's really changed me. I will appreciate that, but I'll forget about it by tomorrow. Sorry. <laughs> you know why? Because I have the goods on me, and I know I'm not that smart and not that good. And if you knew who I really was, you wouldn't listen to me. But that's okay, because if, if I knew who you really were, I wouldn't talk to you. Right? Right? We're, we're, we are oh, self-driven. I mean, you know why they call them selfies, right? They, they can't spell narcissism. That's us. That's us. So Byron and I are always talking about how, you know, we do. We say, man, Pastor Byron, if people had the goods on us, knew we were that clever. But that's good. Because it makes us incredibly dependent on God. That before we speak to you, we're on our knees in prayer. That we're up every morning doing devotions and beg God, please don't let him find out I'm not that smart, please. Please give me the words. How many times have you been praying in the office before you come down? God, please, 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 please. And then the Holy Spirit will remind you, hey, where was this please on Wednesday? You know, you kind of just got up, went about your day. There was no devotion. Where was that then? No, that's not God. That's not God says, oh, man, I'm glad you came today. If Ada ignores me for a week, do I stop loving her, my granddaughter? Does it break my heart? Yeah, but I don't stop loving her. If I can do that in, as a human granddad, you don't think God can go way beyond that. It's just been later in my life I realized, Jeff, what are you doing, man? What are you doing? However, if my wife comes up to me, now if you come up to me and say, Jeff, pa thank you, Pastor Jeff, okay. But if my wife comes up to me and my wife says, you know, Jeff, I haven't told you this, but I really feel blessed to be married to you and to call you my husband. I love you. See, if she tells me that, oh, you know why? Because she has all the goods on me. 
Hey, she's seen me at my very worst, right? She's seen me take advantage of her to emotionally in some ways withdraw from her. So she's seen everything about me. And when she says I love you, it changes me forever because I start to really believe that maybe I am loved in spite of all my failures. And when that truly passes into me, I don't follow her less, I follow her more. Only in the cross do you have a God who says, I've seen everything you've done. I've heard every thought you've ever had. I've seen you at your very worst. And you know what? I love you. I love you. He gave a ransom to give you an objective reality that you're forgiven. And then the subjective part of ransom is the Holy Spirit comes into you. And every time, listen now, every time the Holy Spirit connects with the Word of God, those truths fire into you. If you just do the Word without the Spirit or you do the Spirit without the Word, it's dangerous. You've got to do both. And if you do that, and this is the end, and these are the three things I really want you to write down. I was just tricking you earlier. Here's what you're going to have. Number one, you'll know intimacy. Because it will finally dawn on you that the all-powerful creator of the universe, who sustains every atom in existence moment by moment, is interested in how you are feeling all the time. And although he has all the goods on you, he still loves you and accepts you because of the cross. There is nothing I would not do for my granddaughter, Ada. I'm telling you, even though she tries to manipulate me, think about this, even though she tries to manipulate me, I know that. Even though she tells me, Grandpa, can you give me chocolate? Knowing that I'm not supposed to. And knowing later she'll tell on me. I know all of that. Even though sometimes she's too busy to talk to Grandpa. She's doing something. Let me ask you again. Do you think I still treasure her? Do you think my heart still longs for her? You just sang a song. Did you, did you see the song? That he comes after you, he comes after you, he comes after you. Do you believe that? But he doesn't just come after you in salvation. He comes after you in sanctification. He never stops chasing after you. You know why? Because he loves you. Even when you really do that stupid thing you know you shouldn't do. See, here's the problem. Here's, here's why when the penny doesn't drop, you're in trouble. Because I promise you, no matter how spiritual you think you are, you will come to a season in your life when you're going to be tempted to do something. And you may end up doing it, and it's dumb and you know it, but you'll do it anyway. And then here's what happens. It, it dawns on you, well, you know, I knew better. I did it. And then the evil one comes and says, oh, you can't go back to God. You can't go back to church, man. You can't do that. You blew it. Look, everybody knows what you did. That's not God. Imagine me doing that to Ada. Ada, don't come into my house anymore. I don't want you in my house anymore. Can you imagine? You grandparents, you know you're never going to do that. I'm going to do whatever I can. Ada, please come back and see Grandpa. Please come back and see Grandpa. You think God's not like that? In one moment of time, boom, all you have to do is say, God, I'm an idiot. I blew it. I should have known. I mean, I shouldn't have been dependent on you anyway. Will you take me back? And God weeps and runs out the road to meet you. The real sin is when you think somehow God's been hanging out with you all along because you're good. <laughs> no, he's been hanging out with you because he's good and he loves you. Don't you see, man? The second thing you'll know is you'll know assurance. You'll begin to see that God is Abba Father who loves us more than we could ever imagine, forgive us more than we could ever dream, 
and is interested in our lives more than we could ever hope. In other words, he's our daddy. I love it when my daughter, Sion, when she was a little girl, would come sit on my knee, and I'd read her stories or pray with her. Oh, man, dads love that. But I can't explain it. Grandchildren, what is it with grandchildren? You can send them home, I know. You can send them home. The kids, they have to say, I, I know that, but there's, there's something that it's hard to explain. But remember, if he's our daddy, that means you can turn to him for any need, and he wants to hear it. You say, well, Pastor Jeb, it's been, I, that's not, I want more than that. I want God to give me what I want when I ask him. Well, the problem with that is, does a father give the child whatever they ask for? No, why? Because they love them which means God's not going to give you anything that will destroy you. You'll know assurance, and finally, you'll know inheritance. Because if we're his children, he is our father, and we have an incredible future. In the Bible, it talks about the fact that the heir gets the lion's share of the father's wealth. The, the heir gets the lion's share of the father's wealth. Romans eight seventeen, Paul says, Now if we are children, then we are heirs. So the beautiful imagery here, it's a sermon in and of itself, but Paul is saying that here's what's in store for us. It is so grand and so glorious that we will feel as though we each had alone gotten most of the glory of Christ in his kingdom. This is where the subjective power comes in. When the penny drops and you realize what Christ has done and what ransom means, you'll, listen, you'll stop seeking the approval of the peasants when you already have the love and acceptance of the king. See, that's why you do what you do. That's why you're so stressed out because we're selfish people. We want, we're self-absorbed. We worry about what people think about us. We worry that we have the right image. Why are you worrying about the peasants? When you have the love and the acceptance of the king. When that penny drops, you talk about freedom. Oh, man. Young you know, I, I can say this now, but I can tell you, when I went through my anxiety disorder for three years, I hated it. But the other side is pure gold. Do you know why? Because I really don't care what you think about me. Do you know how liberating that is? I really don't care. I mean, I used to be so nervous before I'd walk out and speak. There's almost no nervousness, and there's appreciation that God has charged. But I don't, because I'm possessed with people. What they now, I just don't care. I mean, I, I like you, and if you like me, that's good. But if you don't, I think I'll get over it. Because God loves me. I have a friend. I'm almost done, but I have a friend. His name is Brett Mullen. He he actually was the 1975 U.S. Amateur Golf Champion. And he and I became friends ago. We were doing a charity event, and I met Brett, and we became good friends. And Brett gives a lot of golf lessons coaching because he's so well-respected. And I remember this little event. One day, I was in Chattanooga speaking, and Brett came out to hear me speak. And then after the service, he said, hey, let's go get some food. I said, okay. So we went to get food, and he said, how are you going to be in town? I said, probably four or five days. He goes, oh. Now, remember, Brett is in great demand. Everybody wants Brett for a half-hour golf lesson, so he's booked up all the time. He said, you're going to be here for four days, are you? I said, yeah. He said, why don't you come to the golf course tomorrow? I'll cancel all my lessons, and I'll spend the whole day with you. Are you serious? I said, why would you do that? And he paused, and he looked at me, and he said, because I love you, you hammerhead. <laughs> Man, I think that's what God wants to say to God, you'd forgive me? You know what I just did? I love you, you hammerhead. But God, 
God, I slept with my boyfriend for like three years and we weren't, okay, stop now. Stop now. But God, I, I did this. Okay, okay, stop now. God, I embezzled from my company. Okay, you might have to go to prison. I can't stop that. But, the, but stop now. Stop now. Stop right now because I love you. I love you. And this is not your best life. This is how amazing and wonderful. And when, you, when the penny drops, in, let me tell you, when the penny drops, in, you understand this, you are going to be so, man, you are going to love life. Because you're going to go, man, God loves me. And you know what? You, you're just going to, you're going to know, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to really try to live the life Christ wants me to live. I'm, but I'm not trying to earn anything. I'm trying because he's already given me everything. You see the difference? Yeah. God. What we forget is that grace is like water and it's always flowing downward. Now, at first that seems meaningless, but if you ever go to Tennessee where I was raised in, and just at the foothill of the mountains, if you go up and hike in the top of the mountains, you'll notice these little streams trickle down. And as they trickle down, they gather power, force, and momentum. And then they start to join other little streams. So by the time they get near the bottom of those Tennessee mountains, they can actually break, they can actually carve a path and sometimes over years break through rock. They can carve a canyon because it relentlessly seeks the lowest part. Do you know Jesus said, truly I tell you, the tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. Now why would he mention tax collectors and prostitutes? And entering the, well, because in the minds of the people that Jesus was teaching, they were the lowest part. The point he's making is no matter how low we sink, grace flows to the lowest part. It goes to the lowest part. I don't know if Bowen remembers this, but we used to sing this song, almost every invitation song. I don't know if you ever did this. Your churches might be too cool for this. Pretty cool. But when I was a kid, I knew we were getting ready because the pastor would come out, and our pastor sang the song, so the piano would start playing like that, and he'd start singing, just as I am, without one plea. To rid my soul, or actually just as I am, I'm waiting not was the uh, second verse. To rid my soul of one dark blot, to, these who, to, the, to thee whose blood can cleanse each spot, O Lamb of God, I come. And then the last part, and he would sing it real slow. Just as I am, thou wilt receive, will welcome, pardon, cleanse, relieve, because thy promise I believe, O Lamb of God, I come. You want to see the kingdom of heaven? You want to live in it and enter it? Become childlike. And you do that by recognizing you got no idea how wonderful God really is. That He has all the goods on you. And He's never going to give up on you. On your worst day, He's right there. Oh, man. The gospel's fantastic, isn't it? The gospel of grace. Father, thank you so much that you love us. If I can love my grandchildren like that in my humanity, I can't imagine the depth and width of the love you have for us. I see it on the cross, but I don't think I fully understand it. That you would give up what is most precious to you so that you would not lose me. That you would leave your home in heaven where you have everything to get the one thing you did not have, which is us. Open our eyes. I pray the penny would drop. And if there's anybody in this room, anybody, that somehow, just now, 
the Holy Spirit opened their eyes. Hey, I've always loved you. I've never left you. I've always been right here. Even in your worst moments, I've been right here because you're mine and I love you. Just turn around and walk into my arms. And because of that, may the wonder of Christmas return this year of the incarnation, God with us to save us, to come into our hearts and remind us every day you're loved. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to get in contact with us or find out more about Highway Church, go to highway.com.au.